Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Hi, everybody. Scott said, I started off this series, and this has been a longer series. Uh, One of the longer ones we've ever done, maybe the the longest, I'm not sure. Um, So it was a long time ago when I opened this series. Then, as you remember, uh, we had the pandemic and the shutdowns happened. It wasn't quite that long ago, uh, <laughs> but it, it seems like it's been a long time ago. Scott and I were talking last night, and he said, you know, we were really thinking and praying, you know, how, how much can North Shore endure? We have a pretty big story to tell here with the life of David, and it was a little bit of a test. So congratulations to all of us. Uh, we're here at the end, and we're going to sum up things, many of the things we've learned about the life of David and its significance for us and why that matters. Why did we spend time learning through the Holy Spirit these lessons which all of scripture teaches. It's obviously for our teaching and our training and our transformation and our fellowship and our union with Christ. And so that's why we've gone through it. So let's bring it all together. Uh, If you need a Bible, if you'd like to have one in your hand, uh, raise your hand. Here come the ushers and they've got Bibles. So raise your hand. Otherwise, open up your your Bible apps if you want to. Our key verse, if you want to put your finger on it or you just want to open it up, would be 2 Samuel 7. So you can go to 2 Samuel 7. That'll be our key passage that we look at. But we're going to look at a number of things. So I'm actually going to read a number of passages. Like I said, this is a kind of a summarizing, bringing it all together time. So there'll be a number of things, but you don't have to flip around everywhere. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 would be a nice place to put your finger on, put a little, a little note in your Bible or your Bible app, and maybe return to it this week and look at it a few times, meditate and think about what the Lord has done through this teaching series. And as we always do um, in your times of fellowship, make sure that we're talking with others about it, asking questions and um, let iron sharpen iron and let the Holy Spirit work amongst us for whatever work he wants to do. So that's the plan. All right, we've said a lot of things about King David. Let's start at the beginning and sort of go through the story at a, at a pretty good pace. Who is King David? Uh, why does he matter? What is his legacy? It's embedded in the story of Israel, which is the story of the Bible. That's news to a lot of people. The story of the Bible is the story of Israel. Um, Now we say, well, of course, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is. Who is the king of Israel? He is the Messiah given to Israel and for the world. Now, what does all of this story mean? David is intrinsically embedded in this story. God chose David to be a particular person through whom he would tell that story. So really significant. If we want to understand the Bible, and we certainly do, we really want to understand who David is and, uh, and, um, and how God used him. Here's a, a, a sort of rough mental timeline I use. There are specific dates to put on this, but to think about the biblical history, uh, we can use very rough numbers. Around 2000 BC, let's say, around 2000 BC was Abraham. So as we're looking from Genesis 11 forward, just think around 2000. That's not exact, but close enough because it's easier to remember. And by the time we get to Moses, think around 1500 BC. Again, not exactly precise, but about a 500 year gap or more, something like that between Abraham and Moses. And that, tells, uh, that takes us from Genesis to Exodus. And of course, Moses is used to found this promised land that God had promised long ago to Abraham. Well, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt and they come to the promised land and then of course, Joshua leads them into the promised land and they have the time of the judges. 
Okay, so that's roughly the time frame that we're at, time of the judges. And in the time of the judges, the God of Israel, who is the God of the whole world, he's the God of the universe who created all things out of nothing, but the other tribes, they don't know that. They have their own gods, and they think that Yahweh is just the God of Israel, just this tribal God among others. That's how the ancient world was. Every tribe had their gods, and the heavens were just as diverse as humanity is, and everyone for themselves, our God against your God. And we know this biblical history. Of course, Yahweh smashes the gods of Egypt as he delivers Israel from Egypt, and it says that all the other nations quaked in fear. Was Yahweh a strong God? If he was, why were his people slaves? You see, Pharaoh wasn't at all worried about Yahweh wanting Israel uh, to come and worship him in the desert. Pharaoh would point at the pyramids and say, look at the strength of our gods. What has your God done? Why should I care? The nations quaked in fear when plague upon plague smashed Egypt. And then one after another, all of the gods fall. Israel enters into the promised land and they enter this time of the judges and Yahweh is their king. They don't have a king like the other nations do. God himself is their king and they are a unique nation, a holy nation dedicated to him to represent who he is to the whole world. They were called to be a holy people, set apart, quite different than the other nations. And they were in fact, not only politically but culturally quite different. The other nations were practicing blood drinking, child sacrifice, Ritual prostitution, none of those things were to happen in Israel. That's the way that the world outside of Israel was. You've heard of you know, cultural toxicity and these sorts of things. This is genuine toxicity. This is genuinely inhumane, absolutely uh, horrific sort of cultural practices. And Israel stuck out like a holy thumb in the midst of all of it. But Israel was populated by people, sinful people, who often were obedient to God and often disobedient. And God is a good father to Israel. He loves Israel. At some point, however, the people of Israel demand of Samuel, their great prophet during the end of the time of the judges, that, they, that God give them a king like the other nations. Apparently, Israel was a little bit embarrassed. The other nations, they had these great kings with all of the pomp and all of the, uh, the, the wealth and all of the uh, incredible... Um, uh, um, it, everything that goes with uh, nobility, and it represents their nation. It's something of a figurehead, and it shows the great grandeur of their nation and their culture, and they were jealous of that. And they said, Samuel, ask God to give us a king like the other nations. Now, of course, Yahweh is their king. They're a holy nation, quite different than the others, but you want to be like them? You want what they have? This is what God says to Samuel. First Samuel 8, 49, um, it says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Samuel, you're about to die and your sons, we don't trust them and they, they shouldn't have been trusted. So there's something very wrong with Samuel's sons. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel, said, and Samuel prayed to Yahweh and Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought, you, brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. 
so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel, give them what they want. We're going to anoint a king. Is this what they want? They want a king like other nations? God is surprisingly accommodating here. So we know the story. This is where we pick up with David. Yahweh gives his spirit to Saul. Saul, we're told, is tall and good-looking. He's got that presence. When Saul comes walking, we say, there's the king. Of course, that's the guy. He looked the part, and his spirit came upon him, and he was empowered, and he began reigning as the king of Israel. But Saul was not obedient. He really began to revel in his own power. He was a very arrogant man, and Yahweh took his spirit away, and in that vacuum, a tormenting spirit, a demonic spirit, came to vex Saul, and he became very jealous of David, a young, dynamic, and humble shepherd boy who had defeated Goliath in battle, who trusted God when the generals of Israel quaked in fear. And God began to show favor to David, and Saul became deeply, deeply jealous of David. And you remember he wanted to murder David and all the intrigue. We talked about those stories at length. And through all of that, eventually Saul died in battle and Israel finally recognized David as king. Samuel had already anointed him as king and he was ready to be king. Through all of that, David respected and loved Saul and his son Jonathan and did not desire to harm God's anointed, respected God's authority. Quite a different man than Saul. Quite a humble background. And so David was God's chosen man, a man after God's own heart. And the high point in the history of Israel is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we see from creation and then, and then the fall, uh, and then God reestablishing, reintroducing himself to humanity through Abraham and Moses and making great promises. And we see the high point of the history of Israel here in 2 Samuel 7. It doesn't get any better than this. Uh, David says to God, I want to have the great honor of building a house for you. I'm the king. Look at the house that I live in. And yet your ark and your presence is in this tabernacle, this mobile tent that the people of Israel had moved through the desert with when God's presence was with them there. God's presence remained with them in Jerusalem. But in this this tent. Now, it was a very ornate tent made with precious metals and, and, and uh, cloths and silks and all those sorts of things. You can, you can read about how it was made. It was a beautiful structure, but it actually paled in comparison to David's own home. Lord, allow me to make a house for you. And God makes him a better deal in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. God says this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He's speaking of Solomon, his son, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
David wanted to do something for posterity, something to celebrate the great and true God of Israel and have the honor of building him a house. And God said, instead, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And this house will stand forever. Now, the house refers to his family line, the promise that his descendant would rule forever over God's people. Never mind all of the toxic, godless nations that will rise and fall. My nation will last forever. My kingdom is forever. And one of your descendants will rule it forever. Can you imagine? Uh, (laughs) David's experience in this, that his descendants would reign forever. So his house is his family line, and then he makes reference, of course, God makes reference to David's kingdom and throne, which represents the divinely established authority to govern the people of God. Now, forever doesn't necessarily mean continuous or unbroken. It just means ultimately without end. Ultimately, this is what will be. A descendant of David will rule over Israel. So the promise then, the Davidic promise, we would say, is that uh, a descendant of David would rule Israel, which is both a spiritual and political kingdom. We cannot just entirely spiritualize it and say, well, it doesn't have any political meaning. It's just all spiritual meaning. That doesn't seem to be what God is saying. And that's certainly not how Israel understood it. God has made a real promise to them, a real promise that involves land, that involves people like you and me, that involves government. And it's ultimately without end. Now, again, I just want to point this out because we do tend to spiritualize this. But we're a Bible church, and let's take what the Bible says seriously and not just sort of wave our hands at it because it seems implausible to us. This really is something that God has promised. And in fact, God was so emphatic about it, he reiterated it many times. A prime example would be in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 28 through 37. It's a pretty, pretty long passage, but we should see it. He says, uh, God says this in Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If the children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever." his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. God is emphatic. I've made this promise to David and it will never be broken. I've sworn by my own name. I'm not expecting David or his descendants or any member of the nation of Israel to uphold this covenant. They will fail and I will chastise them but I will keep my covenant. I will be faithful and I will restore them. Well, that was the high point and it's all downhill from there. Second Samuel seven comes pretty early in the Old Testament canon and Old Testament history goes on for a very long time. In fact, we're only at 1000 BC. So we're gonna have 500 more years of Old Testament history 
And again, it's a quick downward slide. What happens after David? His son Solomon becomes the king that was promised. And all of the pomp and all of the glory and all of the wealth and all of the majesty of a great king belonged to Solomon. He was that guy. We know historically he was that guy. He was cooperating with the king of Tyre to send ships all the way to Spain to get silver. He was navigating and ruling the whole Mediterranean in trade along with these other nations like the the Phoenicians and these other great cultures. He made many um, uh, treaties with these cultures. He was a man of great wisdom, godly wisdom, a man that God had chosen and had given his spirit. But like every biblical figure, like his father, he was a man of great wisdom and godliness and obedience and a man of great pride and arrogance and stupidity. He made these treaties and married a number of princesses from other nations and tolerated their gods. In Israel, where only Yahweh is to be worshipped, where pure worship is to be protected and practiced, he was tolerating the worship of false gods. When he knew the true God, and it was infecting and corrupting Israel, but he was willing to make these trade-offs for political power in order to retain and advance the kingdom that God had given And this led to a a spiral and a fracturing. It actually ended up in the fracturing of the nation of Israel. It broke into two parts. So most of Israel's history that we read about in the Bible involves two nations, not one. Israel in the north and then the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the kingdom of Judah is where Jerusalem is. That tended to be the more faithful kingdom. Um, Israel in the north, they practiced the same religion, but often in very syncretistic, wayward ways. And so we have prophets, much of the Old Testament has prophets from both the north and the south. And again, to breeze through the history of Israel very quickly, you remember that the northern kingdom fell to this great Mesopotamian power, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians, one of the great empires in the ancient world, um, conquered the northern kingdom and wiped them off the map. You remember the prophet Jonah, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, that's the capital of Assyria, and to preach to the Ninevites that judgment is coming. And Jonah says, no, I won't do that. He got on a ship and tried to go as far away as he could. There was a storm and they cast lots and they said, what's going on here? Why is this storm? They knew that it was something spiritual. And Jonah says, that's me. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh and he has told me to go to Nineveh and preach the Assyrians and the storm is because of me. Uh, just throw me off the ship. He doesn't say, hey, turn around and the storm will subside and drop me off and then you can go on your way. He would rather die than obey God. He's a prophet of God, but he would rather die than obey. They throw him in the sea. A great fish swallows him up, spits him out on land. He finally begrudgingly goes to Nineveh and he preaches half-heartedly and they repent. And Jonah said, I knew they would repent. This is exactly what I didn't want because I know you're a merciful God and I know that you would let them survive and I wanted you to destroy them. I was going to do anything to make sure that Assyria was destroyed. God is merciful. But Jonah wasn't crazy. God's forbearance and tolerance with the Assyrians would lead to the end of Israel. Jonah was not only a prophet of God, but he was also a nationalist. He cared about his country and insisted that it survived despite God's plan, despite God's warnings that I will chastise my son. This is God's chastisement. God said he would do this. And Jonah knew it was coming. 
and that was the end of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom resisted Assyrian power until a greater Mesopotamian power came and overthrew the Assyrians, and that, of course, was the Babylonians. And at the end of Old Testament history, the Babylonians can't take Jerusalem. Why? Because God's presence is there. And if God's presence is there, no army can take the city until Ezekiel sees the presence of God leave the temple. And he knows now the city's empty. The defense of the city of Jerusalem is not its walls, but it's God. And he just left. And the Babylonians encircle Jerusalem. And very, many false prophets say, let's not worry. Yahweh will protect us. Yahweh will preserve us. And Jeremiah, the great prophet, knows the truth. God's promises endure forever, but he warned that he would chastise us. And Jeremiah tells the truth, and they try to kill Jeremiah. Nobody wants to hear his negative news, his negative report, but he's the only true prophet in all of Judah. This is what Jeremiah says. Uh, God says, actually, through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 and 30, God says this. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, through Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, that's the king of, of Judah, king of Judah, with a signet ring of my right hand, yet I would tear it off. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God cursed the Davidic line, and he ended it right there with Jehoiakim. You've gone too far. It's over. We just sang a song. You're never going to let me down. God said, I am establishing David your kingdom forever. 500 years go by, we get to Jehoiakim, and God says it's over. The promise is revoked. You're never going to let me down. And it appears in a fit of yang anger, Yahweh said, never mind. What kind of God is that? Is he a God that never lets us down? This is what Israel is now wondering as the Babylonian army threatens, knocks down the walls, enslaves and deports them to Babylon. In that time in Babylonian captivity, they were absolutely lost. God has finally forsaken us. He said that he wouldn't, but yet he has. And here we are. And we're like every other nation. We rose and we fell. And the promises about our nation lasting forever and God's kingdom lasting forever were not true. That's what they're living in. But in Babylonian captivity, there's still flickers of hope. Daniel is faithful to Yahweh and God is with him in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is with them in the fiery furnace. Esther, God is with her in the king of Persia's court. God is still present, but something has changed. Well, the Babylonians eventually fell, as all nations do, to an even greater empire, the famous Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. 
And King Cyrus of Persia was a bit different than the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He was a bit more cosmopolitan um, in his leadership. And he was, it was a true empire where he had many kingdoms under his rule, but he allowed them a good bit of autonomy. And that autonomy kept some stability and some longevity for the Persian empire. So he allowed the Jews to return from Babylonian captivity to go and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. So they returned to rebuild the temple and they were rebuilding and it wasn't very promising looking. They said that a fox could go along the walls of Israel and the bricks would fall over. But yet they were trusting God. Uh, Prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah were leading them in, in this rebuilding effort. And the people came back together and they prayed and they worshiped and they sang. Maybe they sang the song, you're never gonna let us down. And God's presence did not return and they wept bitterly. God did not return. And that's the end of the Old Testament. There you go. Apparently, the Davidic kingdom had ended. The Davidic kingdom was over. And then there's a 500 year gap. 2,000, 1,500, around the end of the Old Testament. 500 year gap. And then Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter one. And he says this to Mary. He says, Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You remember back in, uh, we were looking at uh, 1 Samuel 8. The people said, give us a king like the other nations. You want a human king, not your divine king. Israel said, that's right. Yahweh, we're rejecting you. We want a human king. Surprisingly accommodating. Yahweh says, okay. But do you think, or did Israel think, that our will would be done on earth? or that his will would be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Guess what? You can have a human king, but my will will still be done. I am still your king. The incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas was established and determined by God before the foundations of the earth, but it was first revealed to us in 1 Samuel 8. You want a king to rule over you, but you have a divine king. So I suppose you're asking for a God-man a man that is a brother to you, that you can identify with, that you can see and touch as the apostles did, but yet the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form, Colossians 1. Fully God and fully man. This was determined before the foundations of the earth. God did not forsake Israel. He did not forget. He cursed the line of David at Jehoiakim. But here's something very interesting. Luke traces Jesus's lineage from David, not through Solomon. Matthew traces the lineage from David through Solomon to Joseph, Jesus's adoptive father. Luke traces the lineage from David to Nathan, the second son of Bathsheba, to Mary. Jesus is a biological descendant of David through Mary, and he is a legal descendant of the throne through his adoptive father, Joseph. There's no single person that made up that story. 
This is 2,000 years of storytelling and it all comes together in this way that I don't think I could have made up a story like that. This is too astounding. This is too unexpected. It seems too much like God's work. And so at that time, they realized that this man who the wind and the waves obey, there's something very odd about him. There's something divine about him. And a spiritual kingdom was being inaugurated in him. Peter would confess, you are the son of God. You are the true son of God in Matthew 16. They knew that, but they also expected that given that he was establishing this new spiritual kingdom, he was also establishing a new political kingdom, a new place on the earth with land, with a throne that he would rule from. And it would be a culture and a, and a, and a social body that we could live in and cooperate in and do commerce in and be humans in. Not, not something heavenly, but something also earthly. How do we know this? James and John, their expectation in Matthew 10, they asked Jesus, when you come into your kingdom and we finally eject the Romans, can we sit at your right and left hand when you are ruling? They were thinking of it in political terms. Even after his resurrection in Acts uh, chapter one and verse six, the disciples are talking to the resurrected Jesus and they said, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? Can we take up swords now um, and go start ejecting Romans? Is it, is it time? And Jesus answered, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to them, I'm expanding my kingdom. His main message, Jesus preached over and over, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus' message. He preached over and over. And Jesus is now sending his people out to expand his kingdom. And he said, it's not for you to know the time uh, in which I will come and rule again in in the way that you expect. But for now, go into all of the nations and be my witnesses. And so they begin to do this in the early church, and now you have an influx of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, into the family of God. The churches are filled with Jews who are circumcised and obey, obey the Mosaic law and understand what it means to say that Jesus is Messiah and Greeks and Romans and Persians and all sorts of others for whom this is entirely foreign, but yet the Holy Spirit seems to have come upon them. And the Jews can't understand this. How is this possible? They're uncircumcised. They're not the people of God. What's happening here? And so the great council of Jerusalem happens in Acts chapter 15. And uh, James, Jesus' younger half-brother, the son of Mary and Joseph, James, as one of the founding leaders of the church, along with Peter and John, he stands up and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the... uh, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will name, says the Lord, sorry, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, God is making one new kingdom, one new kingdom, one new humanity out of the two that were divided, establishing a new kingdom. And he says, after this time of the Gentiles, after I have established my kingdom, I will establish, reestablish, 
and rebuild the tent of David. So there's a time of the Gentiles in which the church grows and God gathers in many. And the Bible says that we are grafted into Israel. We become members of God's holy, eternal promise. We become members of that kingdom. We who were far off, we who were cut off from those promises are grafted in, but he will reestablish the tent of David. And so God's promises do endure. The song that we sang after um, You're Never Gonna Let Me Down is, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. That's what we said. In trusting in him, we trust that he's, what he taught was true, that he was sent by God, that God raised him from the dead, and he's returning to reestablish his kingdom of peace. So how do we respond to all of this? This is what the church has always done. We ought to pray that God's kingdom and justice uh, and his, his, his kingdom uh, and peace would be established. Revelation 22, this is what John says. Well, John is quoting Jesus. Jesus is speaking to John. Revelation 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things from the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride, that's us, the Holy Spirit and the bride, the bride is us, the church, say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take water of life without price. We ought to be praying regularly, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come establish your peace. When it seems that the world is disintegrating and fragmenting and has gone insane and is calling evil good and good evil, how do we respond to that? Political campaigns, those come and go, right? Griping and complaining. We pray, Lord Jesus, come and establish your peace. We trust that these promises are true. They're not spiritualized. They're not nice ideas. It's true. The Lord Jesus will stand on the earth and will reign and will be our king. Not just like the other nations, but the king of all kings, which no other nation has ever seen. Uh, secondly, we pray and then we act, as we always do. How do we act? We live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. Live according to the customs of the kingdom of God. We are foreigners in this land. This is what Paul says to the Philippians. It's very important that he says this to the Philippians. The Philippians were a very patriotic Roman colony in Greece. It was an ancient Greek colony, but after the battle of Philippi, you remember Julius Caesar, 50 years before Jesus was born, was murdered, and that started a civil war. And Mark Antony and uh, uh, Octavian, who would become Augustus Caesar, they went to war against Brutus and Cassius. And the final battle was at the battle of Philippi. And after that point, it became a Roman retirement colony. So when Paul and, and, and Silas went to preach at Philippi, they arrested him and beat him up. And Paul said, I didn't know it was legal to beat up a Roman citizen. And they freaked out because Roman citizenship gives you certain rights and prerogatives and privileges, which those men at Philippi had earned through service in the Roman military over decades. It was very valuable to them. They could never be enslaved. They had rights, they had land rights, they had wealth because of the Roman citizenship. And it turns out that Paul was a citizen and they realized, oh no. We just did something egregiously wrong. They valued their citizenship. And so after that time, Paul is writing back to the church of Philippi and he says this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. I'm, I'm a father to you in the Lord, Paul says. Imitate me 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, they just follow their desires and they call it godliness. And, the, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to another kingdom, a real kingdom, not an imaginary thing, not a nice idea. Our citizenship is in heaven. You don't have your passport from that country yet, but you're already named as a citizen. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we know that we're already citizens of that real country that God has obviously established, that he's obviously maintained, and he's been faithful to keep his promise. I think and hope knowing that settles our hearts in, in a lot of ways through um, all of the things that we endure in life and, the, and, and the, the world around us to know that our citizenship is in heaven. He says to the Philippians, you value your citizenship. It works for you. It gives you things that you want. You're not going to give it up easily. You worked hard for it. Guess what? You didn't have to work hard for this. This is given by God's graciousness. And you think those rights and prerogatives are valuable? Your citizenship in heaven, so much more so. And knowing that, again, settles our hearts and establishes who we are as people of God. Let's pray.